Mad Max Minute, where it's bombs away as we drop into Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 4, which begins with a man dressed in black chasing his wagon, and it ends with the black-robed man pulling the covering from his face. Welcome back, Julia. Weekend's over. <laughs> yes, it is. Glad to be back. Yep, and we are not alone today. We are joined by Curtis Blaze from the Better Off Dead Minute. Hey, Curtis. Hey, guys. Glad to be back. Missed you. Yeah, we are glad to have you back. You were one of our standout guests in season two. Plenty of good content for us. And we are glad to have you for this entire week as we <laughs> join this mysterious stranger dressed in black who, who knows who he is. We're so intrigued. And hopefully by the end of this minute specifically, we'll figure out who we're dealing with. A pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> We start off today with our robed man who literally just took a plane to the face, leaping up from the ground and starting to sprint after his camel cart, which is just heading off on its own. There's no way of stopping it. I have questions. <laughs> we'll do our best to answer them. Okay, so you guys have talked about the uh, Jedediah knocking the mysterious man off of the wagon. Mm -hmm. Yes. Did you buy it? <laughs> I, okay. I realize this is last minute. Between today and the last time when we were talking about the actual collision, I mean, we're starting off this movie with a lot of things that are just really unplausible. Like we found, at least I found in my research, that the gliding speed for a plane like this is pretty much highway speed. So if you can imagine sitting there on a park bench and then taking a motorcycle tire to the face at highway speed, I mean, you're not going to just get up off the ground and start sprinting after that. Right. It's not reasonable. <laughs> okay, while I agree with you on that, that it's not reasonable, I'm reading the novelization of the screenplay, mm -hmm. which has a little bit more detail in it. In the novelization, our mysterious man in black is wearing a turban around his head and specifically notes that the only reason he survived the wheel to the head is because it hit the turban. Hit the turban and drug him off. <laughs> yes. But I still don't think that that's enough padding to save his life. Well, what if it caught the edge of the turban and dragged him off? Right. I'm good with that. Yeah? I mean, at least in the angle that we saw, he was able to get his hand up and sort of intercept the tire before it connected with his face. And it wasn't a full-on middle-of-the-tire center of gravity to the nose type of thing. It was sort of a glancing blow, but there's just something about this plane, this plane specifically, and the people that are surrounding it, that it just, it's different. It doesn't obey the rules, so to speak. Well, and okay, so learning that from the novelization, that makes me question, were they just straight up trying to kill him and not very good at it? Because imagine the skill involved with just giving someone a glancing blow versus making sure you're low enough to get him. I would argue that either way, they're killing him. Stranding him in the middle of the desert is killing him. I mean, these guys, Jedediah and his son, they strike me as the trained marauder type, the sort that will go out into the desert like this all the time and just pick people off and steal their stuff. And so I would imagine that they'd be pretty practiced at it. And this instance here, where their quarry is able to hop up off the ground after a collision like this might be, I'd say, a fluke. It might also be that the guy that they chose to mess with is some sort of nigh-unkillable legend of the wasteland. <laughs> the good of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> this cart that they unseated our mysterious man in black from is pretty sweet. I checked the MadMaxMovies.com vehicle page and the base of this wagon, more or less, is an F-Series Ford pickup with an Aussie-styled lift kit. I didn't know that Aussie-style lift kits were different than U.S. lift kits, but apparently they are, according to the website. It makes me wonder if the world ended tomorrow, would you, and this is like a royal use, so I'm asking both of you, be comfortable riding out the apocalypse in the vehicle you currently own. Yes, but can I get an oil change real quick first? <laughs> if I can just get an oil change, I would be happy with that car forever. I'm saying yes. I definitely would. I'm ready for the apocalypse. I'm a little envious. <laughs> <laughs> Rick, would you feel comfortable in Lo your current car? Longtime listeners of the show will remember that I like to complain about my car because I currently drive a smart car, and it is the most painful driving experience I think I've ever had. Not just physically, but also like emotionally and psychologically. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you look at all these Wasteland Raiders and they're running around stealing other people's vehicles. Those are probably the guys that started out with just these tiny little beater cars that they're just driving because they got to get good gas mileage or fit them in the garage or something like that. When the world goes to hell, the first thing I'm getting rid of is that dang smart car. Because <laughs> I cannot transform it into a camel cart or any sort of situation I could live out of. I mean, granted, it is pretty light. I wouldn't need camels to pull it. I could probably just use beavers or squirrels or something like that. I would counter your feelings about your car by pointing to the war in Yugoslavia. Okay. And the way that they transformed Yugos into war wagons. <laughs> they cut the tops off them, mounted 50 caliber uh, machine guns. <laughs> armor plated them. They made Yugos, I don't know if you remember Yugos, into things that they fought each other on the battlefield with. You know, Rick, your car is already a convertible. You wouldn't even have to cut the top off. Yeah. I mean, I would feel very odd mounting any sort of gun because I feel like the recoil would tip the vehicle over. <laughs> <laughs> That's when you just make sure that you are moving forward while shooting the gun so that the recoil and the forward motion cancel each other out. And I would stay in one spot. And you would stay in one spot. <laughs> You'd always have your motorcycle. Exactly. I would ditch the smart car. Yeah. Stick with the motorcycle. You know what you could do? You could fashion your smart car. Into a sidecar. Into a sidecar for the motorcycle <laughs> for me. I like it. Yeah. I like it I like too. It. Speaking of animals pulling vehicles, these camels... I didn't realize this before, but there are actually two types of camels, the two-humped and the single-humped variety. The single-humped variety is the kind that we see here, and those are called dromedaries. And according to a forum post that I found on draftanimalpower.org, camels are not only stronger, but they have more stamina than mules and bullocks which is the Aussie name for oxen. That jives with my knowledge of camels. Yeah. yeah. Me too. What's the native camel situation like in Australia? We actually got to talk about that a little bit when we first got to the compound back in Road Warrior. Camels were initially brought to Australia by English settlers because camels do great in arid environments and they don't need a lot of water. Then the railroad came and the English settlers said, well, we've got the railroad, we don't need the camels. And so they just let the camels go. And now Australia is home to 
into the largest wild herd of camels in the world. Just another example of colonizers showing up and just wrecking with the native population of wildlife. For the longest time, I thought this vehicle was maybe one of the wrecked vehicles from the last time we saw Max on the road. Like he had to grab something. That's a good point because when we left him in Road Warrior, he was driving the Lone Wolf vehicle, which seemed like a really sturdy, really fast vehicle. And one thing that we dug up in Friday's episode this past week, we got a couple of excerpts from Terry Hayes and from George Miller, and they basically said that Thunderdome takes place about 15 years after Road Warrior, and the gasoline that existed before the collapse is now all used up. So it would make sense that in the 15 years since Road Warrior that Max would adapt and change. It is a little sad that the lone wolf was just disappeared like that, but it does also make sense that Max being the resourceful and adaptive sort that he'd be able to rig up something like this out of an old ute. I do think it's too bad that the modified ute that he's driving now is not the lone wolf, that it's not the same car. Yeah. It would have been nice for some consistency. Yeah. Yeah. A nice little reminder of Papagallo and how to not be like Papagallo. (laughs) (laughs) Not be a putz. Yeah. (laughs) As you guys go through the minutes, I kind of envy the conversations you're going to have. There are a lot of repeating themes in this movie, Mm -hmm. particularly that are carried over to um, Fury Road. We've already mentioned at least once the idea of how this movie really sets the stage for the movie to come. And the more I watch it, the more... I find that I really enjoy this movie. (laughs) I'm experiencing the same thing. I was not a huge fan of this movie. When I was a teenager, just quick story, I bought the magazine movie special and spent a long time anticipating and looking forward to seeing this movie because I loved the other two. And then when it came out, it was like, eh. (laughs) We got some 80s music. (laughs) I don't know what the crack is where the kids live and why everybody had to suddenly like kids. But whatever, watching it now, especially minute to minute in these three, but watching the whole thing just, you know, as in preparation to to be a guest with you guys, there's a lot of things going on that he was really retelling. Mm -hmm. A lot of situations where you can see where Max came from and where he is now and how those stories told in the first two movies really shaped the man that we see at the beginning of this movie and how this chapter in his life, now granted, there's the whole thing with the new actor. We don't want to get into that. We're just going to sit back and be happy with the idea that it's all the same character between all four movies, but it's setting up who he's going to be come Fury Road. And there are these through lines, just like you're saying, and it's nice to see them with the benefit of hindsight. You're right. One of the things that occurs to me, and and luckily you won't be able to get to this minute for several months, so... I'm just going to touch on it here quick. Those people that Max sees when he's hallucinating in Fury Road. When I watched the movie, I was saying to myself, that's not his wife and kid. That's you know, not even, <laughs> that's a girl even. And now watching this movie, it all clicked for me. It's, it's like, oh, these could have been these kids. Mm-hmm. One of the things that stood out in the quote that I saw from George Miller on Friday, there are stories that happened between the second and third movie that will never get to hear that we'll never get to see and the same is equally true between the third and the fourth movie yes i like that idea do you guys count the video game as canon (laughs) sounds like Uh, sounds like i'm the video game is an interesting beast it was 
And for those that are wondering, we're talking about the 2015 video game made for, I think it's like the Xbox One. And it was made by, I think, Avalanche Studios. Uh, I think they were the same guys that made the Batman Arkham series of games. But the development of that game was... Mm, more or less done in parallel to Fury Road. And so a lot of the materials that they took for the video game were more or less concept sketches. And when Vertigo came out with their official Fury Road prequel comic books, you can see a lot of the ideas from George Miller's sketches and storyboards that the video game company used to make their story more or less it's a rough retelling type of thing i think one of the big things between the video game and the movie series that changed is that in the video game they made max have a wife and daughter and a in-ground swimming pool and it's like eh, that's that's not the max that i know but the other things about that game the the driving it's it's really fun to play but lore wise it just it plays a really fast and loose and not in a good way <laughs> oh i'm so embarrassed i was talking about the 1990 video game in which max has to fight his way to arena and then survive a bumper cars contest in order to win i <laughs> have no knowledge of this <laughs> Oh, you're talking about the Nintendo Entertainment System game. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, yeah. I've seen gameplay of that one. <laughs> of course I'm joking, but I actually did play it. I actually did solve it. The cursory search I've done of it, apparently you can play through it in about half an hour. It's terrible. <laughs> unplayable it's so bad i do appreciate you letting me go off on that tangent about the 2015 game though <laughs> no i'm kidding i was talking about that game um, i didn't i didn't want max to flash back to the memory of when he was playing um bumper cars with the final boss <laughs> <laughs> hey so we're kind of getting away from it a little bit jumping back into the movie the part where jedediah jumps onto the wagon oh yeah again we're talking about Something cruising along at highway speed, and he falls off and lands on a chair. I, oh, when I saw that with Jedediah telling Jedediah Jr. to go straight home and Jedediah Jr. is all gung-ho for it, and then he climbs out of the cockpit, I never got to fly anything cool when I was a kid. The most I got to do was drive my grandpa's pickup truck on the dump road. I didn't even get to do that. <laughs> when I was Jedediah's age, I was sitting on dad's lap driving down the road. <laughs> real. <laughs> See, I grew up in the suburbs. You don't get to do anything cool in the suburbs. What really boggles my mind here is the fact that Jedediah Jr. is able to so easily fly this plane because one thing that I often forget about planes is that it's not just the control stick. You've also got pedals that control your rudders and whatnot. And so what kind of situation does Jedediah Jr. have here? Does he have blocks on the bottom of his feet like Short Round in the beginning of Temple of Doom? That wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> no, it wouldn't surprise me at all. You know, he's been probably flying since he was old enough to figure it out, to know what it was. He might be eight or nine here, and I bet he's been flying since he was five. Yeah, that makes sense. I'll bet that cockpit and that seat that he's sitting in is specially designed to accommodate his size and allow him to fly. The notes did say that this plane was highly modified. That seems about right. Do you know what it's based on? It seems to have propellers that are on top of the wing. Am I looking at that right? I think it's got a propeller in the front. It's based on a Transavia PL-12 air tuck. Okay. Yeah, it's just odd little cargo plane that they didn't make too many of. But like you said, Jedediah goes out on the wing and Jedediah Jr. is flying it, I guess about as level as he can, and then yells bombs away, and Jedediah jumps 
from the airplane wing. Are we supposed to take from that that Jedediah Jr. is making the call on when he should jump? <laughs> you know, it's one of those father-son activities. <laughs> Just building trust between the two of them. Yeah. It, this, this whole thing does seem very practiced. Like, I'm sure they have done this probably dozens of times before. Yeah. Even if they've done it dozens of times, I'm not telling my son, go straight home, son. I'm saying, <laughs> you come back and make sure that I made it. Right. <laughs> I don't want to be laying in the middle of the breakaways with a broken leg because I missed. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we can tell by the way he hits that wagon that it's not a very soft landing. He hits that bench and he yells, Christ, because A, he's defying the laws of physics here. And B, he's also just straight up jumping from the wing of an airplane. And like I mentioned before, it's at this point that I'm like, OK, maybe this movie is a little more goofy than the other two. Right, right. Maybe. I'm starting to get my suspicions here. When I first watched it, when it came out in 1985, I was, what would I have been, 14. I bought it then. When I was 14, I was like, yep, jumped off. That's fine. It's only my cynical adult brain that looks at this and goes, come on. Right. (laughs) This is definitely a situation where Bruce Spence's height would come in handy because his feet are going to hit that wagon and he's got more... leg length to decelerate his torso and as we all know the longer time you have to decelerate yourself the less injury you're going to sustain i don't think it works that way but but it sounds good it sounds good yeah man i don't know (laughs) hey the hats they're wearing pith hat pith helmets is that what they're called yeah and not just regular pith helmets, but I mentioned they've got the little motorized fan in the brim. And the fans seem to be working. Now, I did not notice that. Well, I can't make out an individual blade, which leads <laughs> me to believe that it's either running and blurred or has no blades. There are solar-powered pith helmets, but... I don't know if they'd still be functioning in a post-apocalypse. I imagine that the solar-powered variety would be the only kind of pith helmet to still be working in a post-apocalypse. Because, I mean, where are you going to find double A's? Right, who's making those? Certainly not Duracell. That bunny has stopped a long time ago. You've got the Citadel, you've got the Bullet Farm, you've got Gas Town, you've got Bar Town, you've got the Battery Town. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Jedediah Jr. flying this plane, he's pretty young. Julia, you looked up something about young pilots, right? Yes, and I was actually a little bit disappointed by what I found. The youngest licensed aviator that I could find was a man by the name of Farnham Thayer Fish. He was 15 years old when he was licensed as a pilot back in 1912. Doing quick math in my head. So yeah, about 1912, he was a licensed pilot. And I'm a little disappointed that he was still 15. I was hoping for something dramatic like 10 or something honestly yeah i was hoping for like a 10 to 12 year old flying a plane across the united states or something like that but not the 15 isn't impressive it is 15 is impressive because they gave him a license or something like that it's not like he's flying amateur like when we see the air tuck flying over our mysterious man in black towards the wagon before Jedediah jumps off the wing. He's keeping it fairly level, but he's also rocking back and forth a little bit. And especially later on in this minute when he's flying away for a final time, he's rocking quite a bit. So those little 
eight-year-old hands yeah. probably could use a little bit more growing before they can really hold it steady. Yeah. That is not how I interpreted it. I interpret it as him deliberately waving at his dad as he drives by. Oh, see, that's cute. That's adorable. I like that. Well, that's how you wave when you're flying a plane. That's a thing. Yeah. They used to do that on flybys when we were on the ship in the Navy. Nice. So something that I couldn't quantify was kind of the same thing with tractors. Families who have a tractor as part of their livelihood, the kids learn to drive a tractor and work the land pretty early. I can attest to that. Yes. And so I wonder if it's the same thing with planes. If it's part of your family's livelihood, how young do you get in the cockpit and get to work? Well, I don't know if it's necessarily a family thing with planes. It might be, but I definitely think it would be a family thing for marauders in the wasteland. Right. I mean, kids got to start earning their keep. Right. For instance, my kid knows how to run a camera at 10 years old. He knows the exposure triangle, et cetera, et cetera, because, you know, that's what I do. And so he knows that from me. Getting back to this minute, Jedediah grabs the reins, starts driving the wagon away. Does it still count as Grand Theft Auto if the uh, car has been converted into a wagon? <laughs> yes. I thought Grand Theft was determined by the value. <laughs> but those camels are pretty valuable. That's true. Right. That's true. Is it Grand Theft Auto if there's no title to the vehicle? It's a good there's point. There's no proof of ownership. I mean, possession is nine-tenths of the law. Especially in post-apocalypse where there's no paper records anymore. Mm -hmm. Theft, though, is deliberately denying someone use of their property. That's true. So I'm going to go with yes, it is Grand Theft Auto. Okay. Because while the vehicle itself isn't worth much, the package as a whole is, mm. and it's also worth everything to max and despite how fast our mysterious man in black is running he cannot catch up to it but all is not entirely lost because as we see there's a view from the back of the wagon and there is a monkey in the back of the wagon just pawing around and he starts messing around with things i should correct myself though the monkey is not a he the monkey is a she i found an excerpt from the book Miller and Max by Luke Buckmaster, which I think, do we have it do sitting we, over there on the we do. bookshelf there? Yes, we do. Yeah, there we go. So in the section where they're talking about the monkey, this is what they say. A slightly better mannered but still erratic cast member was the crab-eating macaw monkey named Sally Ann. She is introduced when Max is stranded in the desert and about to discover the children at the crack in the earth. The problem with Sally Ann was not that she had no idea how film set worked, but quite the opposite. She developed an understanding of what was going on, then intentionally and strategically violated protocol. <laughs> the book continues. Sally picked up fairly quickly the whole routine of filmmaking and would be quite well behaved, co-writer Terry Hayes later recalled, before the first assistant director said turnover, the signal to begin rolling the camera and audio. As soon as the first said turnover, Sally refused to do what was required. Sally's version of acting was to jump up and down on the spot endlessly. A freshly formed monkey unit had to stand by and film Sally until Sally by good fortune did something that would cut into the film. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. And it doesn't end there. Not only was she camera shy, she was also uh, rather difficult to work with, at least with some of the actors. The book continues. The situation was complicated by a rocky relationship between Mel Gibson and the monkey. Sally Ann was one of few, if any, cast members to have disliked the star. Karen Monkhouse, who spent a lot of time with the animals, including Rodney and the pig, remembers when Sally Ann and Mel met. The little monkey did not like Mel from the first day. He was wearing sunglasses, reflective sunglasses. So all the monkey could see when she met Mel 
was herself, and she thought there was another monkey there. And she was putting her little monkey hands out and grabbing his jacket, and then she bit down on him as hard as she could, and that was the start of a very unhappy relationship. Oh my god. Oh, if only he had known. (laughs) To take off the mirrored sunglasses, yes. (laughs) I've got a confession. The reason I wanted this minute, it is the pivotal minute in max's life Mm -hmm. if it were not for this monkey strategically throwing that whistle off of the back of the wagon the whistle and the geiger counter apparently nothing else in this movie would have happened there is a lot that sally ann is throwing off the back of this wagon we get a nice side profile view of the wagons as it's rolling along at a pretty good clip and she is just throwing item after item after item off the back of that wagon and one of the things that the cinema sins video that we've mentioned before is quick to point out that a lot of this movie hinges on that whistle that you mentioned and out of all of the sins that they've listed that's the one i'm willing to concede that yes technically the rest of the movie does hinge on the random flinging of a monkey it is as big as no life forms hold your fire Mm -hmm. but this monkey okay what do you guys think about this this monkey is throwing things off the back of the wagon is she trying to help max at this point does she know max is in trouble and is trying to help him or if none of this had happened max was just like traveling through the breakaways the way that he was going to do it anyway Would she have started throwing stuff off anyway? And an hour from now when he took a break, he'd go back to his wagon to find some stuff and (laughs) and not find anything and have to go back. You know, I like number two. I'm not sure it's the one I choose, but I really like the idea that the monkey was going to do this no matter what. It just so happened that it was to Max's benefit. That's really fun. Now, see, I like to look at this situation as if Sally Ann is the new dog. Like, Max took some time after he lost Dog back in Road Warrior and... He probably tried other pets, but this is just the one that he's made the freshest connection with. And that Sally Ann is throwing all of these things off the back of the wagon because her and Max have this relationship. I just told everybody how Sally Ann did not like Mel, but for the sake of the narrative, I'd like to think that she recognizes, hey, where's Max going? Why is he not on the wagon? He should probably have his shoes. You know, that type of thing. Like a little monkey butler. And Rick, to support that later on, it is her again, bringing Max the water in the, in the great salt flats. Mm-hmm. That makes me wonder something sad. How many familiars has he been through since dog? Animals don't live as long as humans. Hmm. Many animals do not live 15 years. Has he made other connections to animals and lost them too? Hmm. Curtis, what do you think? Monkeys are relatively long-lived, so it's possible. Yeah. By the way, did you say what type of monkey she is? A macaw. Hey everyone, it's Rick in the editing booth. Just a quick note. The monkeys aren't called macaws, they're called macaques. Sounds funny when I say it, but that's what they are. We're just going to keep calling them macaws in this episode because, yeah, we made a mistake. We're human, so have fun with that. Hope you don't mind. Aren't they the really obnoxious ones? Like they steal a lot, like a lot? <laughs> is macaws are spiders, or is macaw the name for spider monkeys? I think they're one and the same to the internet. Oh, spider monkeys are usually capuchins. Oh, yeah, and this doesn't look like Sally. But the thing about these type of monkeys is they don't really hang out in the desert, as far as I know. And so it might be maybe Max went north at some point in these 15 years or so. It might be that he went up towards the more jungle sort of areas of Australia. And it's just at this point in his life, he just happens to be going across the desert. 
Well, yeah, he's all the way south at this point. Well, I don't know in canon where he is, but on Earth, he's all the way south at this point. Mm -hmm. Slowly moving his way across the continent. (laughs) (laughs) There are a thousand videos of macaws stealing from people. So, yes, Julia. That was in my brain because of one of those, like, travel competition shows, like The Amazing Race. And they're somewhere with the macaw monkeys. And the monkeys are taking everything. (laughs) They will take your sunglasses and anything you might be eating and your backpack and everything. You have to be really careful. Well, Max uh, trained him to be an anti-macaw then and give everything. Yes. quick side note before we move on from the monkey pushing the stuff out of the cart. In the novelization, the monkey pushes everything out of the cart. He doesn't just push the handy things, the boots and the canteen and the guy counter. He pushes everything out of the cart. So along Max's walk that we'll talk about in the future minutes, he has to pick up all of his stuff along the way and carry it. That I love that. Yes. That makes everything make more sense because, boy, it sure is handy that all 10 of his guns and all seven of his numbers <laughs> right. and his Geiger counter and his bosun whistle, you know, yeah. and everything fell out. Just, just those things and some boots. Mm-hmm. Right. So we just got to see the handy things. Yeah. The things that later on we're going to wonder where they came from. I'm sure there's probably some sort of pin or latch or release at the back of that wagon that will either let everything slide right out or maybe a tailgate will drop or open up and Jedediah is just so busy driving those camels that he doesn't even think anything of it. Yep. At the end of the day, the camels and the cart, that's the valuable stuff. The things inside, take it or leave it. Right. They'll keep him alive for right now, but in the long term, that's not what he's after. Right. He wants his camels and his truck back. Yeah, Jedediah is driving these camels camels pretty hard. That side shot that I mentioned, those tires, they're rolling at a pretty good clip. I looked up how fast dromedaries can move. Their top speed, now granted, I'm assuming the top speed is one rider, short distance, but apparently they can get up to about 40 miles per hour or about 64 kilometers per hour. Teamed up like this, I imagine they'd go a little bit slower. They have a more conservative running slash jogging of about 9 to 12 miles per hour or like 14 to 19 kilometers per hour. In theory, if the man in black were like Usain Bolt, he'd be able to catch up to this wagon. But being at the disadvantage he is, starting on his back and having to run to catch up, he probably would have had a really tough time of it, especially being barefoot. Still, when he gets up, he's, I estimate, about 50 yards away from his wagon at that point. And then we cut to Jedediah and Junior, and then we cut back, and now he's like 100, 150 yards behind, and this is before they're being driven. Mm. This is just him trying to catch up with them. Yeah, you get the sense that this man in black, maybe he's not, you know, the running sort. Like maybe he's got a somewhat sort of old injury that's slowing him down. (laughs) perhaps we might as well stop beating around the bush like we've been doing for the last two minutes the man in black gets to the top of a crest and he rips that covering off of his face and it's max our hero (gasps) really shock and awe (gasps) surprising absolutely no one (laughs) i mean you can try and keep up a facade but you know i wasn't gonna do it for any more than two minutes It's nice to see him after all of this time. I mean, his hair's a little bit longer and his outfit is definitely a bit more flowy. I want to talk about that when we start up next minute. I don't want to get into his wardrobe just yet, but 
It's nice to see that he's not wearing that big old clunky knee brace anymore. I was going to talk about that, but we didn't see that until the next minute. No knee brace. Exactly. Yeah, we'll jump on it tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. I think one last thing. Right now, I am drawing a blank. I can't remember how Road Warrior started. Did it start with a dramatic reveal of Mel Gibson? No, it was a zoom out of the air intake on the front of the interceptor, and it was just Max sitting behind the wheel. Okay. It wasn't any sort of cloak and dagger like the first movie where we don't see his face for five ten minutes oh, okay because it does seem this movie has that in common with mad max 79 mm-hmm. where it teases us with his actions for a minute or two and then reveals his glorious mel gibson face to us <laughs> boy it is just a spaghetti western absolutely i think this might be out of the three movies we've seen, because there's no opening chase, because there's no opening montage, this might be the fastest that we get the Mel Gibson reveal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They paid him a million dollars to be in this movie. You want to get him on screen as much as possible to make that investment worth it. Yes, you do. <laughs> well, and at the time, Mad Max was kind of a phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Mel Gibson was named the sexiest man in the world. And then they gave him long, luxurious hair. Yeah. Hmm. And kind of gray at the temples. Julia, you don't seem so sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm really not into the long hair main thing. I prefer him once he gets a haircut halfway into the movie. I don't really know anything about you personally, but had you been dating age in 1985, that was kind of a thing. We long-haired gentlemen were uh, were in demand. Perhaps. I, I was think... definitely not of dating age. <laughs> you know, you can tell that Max is into this hairstyle because when we pick up with him at the beginning of Fury Road, he pretty much has this same look going on. He grew his hair out again. He does? Yeah. Oh, oh you'll, you'll okay. find out. It has been a long time since I've seen Fury Road. <laughs> right. That's one of the things I envy about you guys doing this movie because it, it fits in with Fury Road so much. There's even the scene where they're cutting the hair off and then stealing it from him as it gets cut off mm-hmm. where there's a kid grabbing the hair away when he gets to the crack. So many similarities to Fury Road in this movie. Yeah, we're going to have a lot of fun when we get to it. But in the meantime, I think that brings us to the end of this minute. So we are going to put a pin in this. We are going to catch up with Max next time we convene. He's going to be looking over at the expanse and we'll talk about what he's wearing and what he's looking at and all of that loveliness. Curtis, where can people catch up with you on the internet? Well, Jason and I are on a multi-year quest to fulfill our mandate and finish the Better Off Dead Minute. And uh, I'm going to be trying to solo host with guests only the Clue Minute in coming years. <laughs> Hopefully this year. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yep. It's going to be. Yep. We are definitely looking forward to that one. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Ire by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link join our patreon by clicking the support link or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link thank you for joining us for beyond thunderdome we will see you next time oh!